Amen. amen. You can't say amen to that. That was also a trick. I was, I think, 7th or 8th grade when that came out, so I wasn't in the, the, the stadium. Maybe you were. Maybe you were. Does anybody know the, the rest of the, uh, the song there? No, all the, wor- all the harder words after that. <laughs> Nobody knows. I knew, I knew somebody that knew them all. So anyway, uh, today we're going to go and read Mark chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. The first commentary I opened, it says something like this. Mark 13 is the hardest chapter in the book of Mark and one of the hardest chapters in the entire New Testament. That was really encouraging to me. So we're calling these uh, this week and next week. It's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. So this is part one. Hear God's word from Mark 13. We're just going to read the first 13 verses. Mark 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another, that will be not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, <clears throat> Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring to you trial to deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin by asking four or five questions generally as we talk about your favorite theme and mine, eschatology. Now, eschatology comes from two Greek words, eschatos and logos, meaning the study of the last things. So because it's complicated, let me uh, usher us into this text very slowly today by asking us a series of questions to begin with. And question number one is this, when do the last days occur? Did you know that the last days started 
with the incarnation of Jesus, with the kingdom of God breaking into history to establish a new creation. A kingdom that would be a sign for some of judgment and for others of salvation. A kingdom where the promised Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh and a new Israel would be established by Jesus and centered upon Jesus. The last days, when do they occur? Don't take my word for it. Let's go to the Word. Hebrews chapter 1 says like this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Oh, pastor, don't you know that you can't talk about eschatology in the church? It's too complicated. It's too convoluted. It's too complex. Well, did you know that the very first sermon ever preached in the history of the church alluded to eschatology under no uncertain terms? Acts 2, Peter's great sermon. What does he say? He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days... What? In the what? Last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh... Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And so Peter interprets the prophet Joel referring not to some futuristic event, but to the last days inaugurated by Jesus with the Spirit being poured out. Not exclusively on nationalistic Jewish people alone, but Upon the church, Jews and Gentiles together, the last days have arrived now, Peter is saying. So when Peter interprets Pentecost being the fulfillment of Joel, Peter is essentially saying we are living in the last days right now. And they've continued on until our day. We could talk about Galatians 4 and Hebrews 9, 1 John 2. In fact, let's do so. Hebrews 9 says like this, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all. When? At the end of the ages. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is eschatological language referring to the cross of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, Paul says, when the fullness of time has come, this is also eschatological language, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Last days arriving in and through the ministry of King Jesus. The Kingdom of God breaking into history. 1 John chapter 2, John doesn't refer to the, the last days. He even intensifies this language even more. He likes to talk about the last hour. He says, children, it is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming and so many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know <clears throat> that it is the last hour. When do the last days occur? 
the last days occur when the kingdom of God breaks into history in the person of Jesus Christ. Second question is this, what time is it? Eschatology tells you to be aware of the time. When I was in high school, before our team ran out onto the floor, we were back in the locker room and somebody, we'd get in a huddle, one guy would get in the middle and he would get us hyped. And we, the guy would say, what time is it? And we'd say, game time. What time is it? Game time. What time is it? Game time. Eschatology tells you game time. The primary focus of New Testament eschatology is to communicate to believers unflinchingly, wake up. It's game time. Game time for your faith. Game time for obedience. Game time for endurance in the midst of trials and persecution. When the last days are underway, there is suffering, there is tribulation, and there are trials. Game on for the Christian. This is the normal Christian life. So don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. The Lord is ruler over history. So why would you fret? Why would you worry? Why would you stress out? The Lord is sovereign over your trials. The Lord is sovereign over tribulations. The Lord is sovereign even over your tears. You see, the enemies have been vanquished on the cross. And so you just have to recognize what time it is that you live by the power of the resurrection and victory by the Holy Spirit of God. And so eschatology tells you what time it is. Victory time for the Christian because Christ has died for you and Christ has been raised for your life and my life. I remember when I was 13 years of age, Nancy Fredrickson, all four foot ten of her, junior high director, us squirrely middle school kids were in Fellowship Hall. What was going on? Well, if you tried hard enough, she gave us a bunch of pencils, well sharpened, we could stab the, the, the ceiling with a little shot up by a pencil. This was great. The business manager probably didn't like that, nor the senior pastor, but here, here we were. And so what would happen? The, the pencil would eventually fall down, and that's when Nancy Fredrickson made her point. You see that spot on the ceiling? That's your life. The entire ceiling is all eternity. What time is it? Don't you realize that you're in the last two minutes of the football game? Time for obedience. Time for faith. Time for faithful endurance in the midst of trials. Eschatology helps you recognize what time it is. Question number three. It's a little bit more difficult. Don't be alarmed. But I'm going to ask it anyway. What is inaugurated eschatology? There's a scholar by the name of W. Mason. You know you've arrived when they just call you your first name is like just W. <laughs> he says the supreme sign of the eschaton is the resurrection of Jesus and the descent of the Holy Spirit on the church. The resurrection of Jesus is not simply a sign which God has granted in favor of His Son, Jesus, 
But it is the inauguration, the entrance into history of the times of the end. And so inaugurate eschatology says something like this. The end has come. The end has not yet come. The kingdom of God is inaugurated by Jesus' ministry and resurrection, but awaits the fullness and consummation of that same kingdom, which will be fully realized in the new heaven and the new earth. You see, what is the tension that we experience? The believer lives between D-Day and V-Day. Now, D-Day in World War II referred to the Allies establishing a strategic beachhead on Normandy. D-Day assured the Allies the war is all but over. Victory is on the horizon. The enemies will be defeated. The evil of the gas chambers will be shut down and closed forever. And yet, what happened? Did the Nazis simply lay down their guns? Did the Nazis stop the rolling of their tanks? That didn't come until 11 months later, V-Day. But it was D-Day that delivered the decisive knockout blow in the world. And so what is our D-Day in the Christian life? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because you and I think like this, if Jesus can do that, then our ultimate victory is always assured. But in the meantime, we fight until the final victory day, the second coming, when faith will be as sight in the new heavens and new earth. We still await greater blessings, greater rest for our souls, greater presence of the Spirit in our lives together. And so we live in this tension between D-Day and V-Day. We live in this tension of the already, not yet. And so let me put it like this. Eschatology is inaugurated already with Jesus, yet we await the consummation and fulfillment of the kingdom, not yet. And so this tension, this common tension you feel in the Christian life, you might never have named it like this, but it's actually an eschatological tension that affects each and every one of us how we live out the Christian life. Let me give you two ways that you feel it. You feel it in the tension of ongoing sin. Don't you feel it? The ways that you transgress, the ways that you say, oh no, not again. What am I doing? Why? Because you know I'm a saint. I'm beloved by God. You are more than a conqueror. Once you, I've tasted the goodness of God, once I've felt the Holy Spirit in me, how can I continue to live in sin? And so this presence of ongoing sin in my life is an eschatological reality. Sin is not yet fully vanquished. So let me put it like this. The power and the penalty of sin has been decisively paid, but the presence of sin still remains. That's an eschatological reality. We're waiting Oh Lord, one day you're going to put sin away from my life completely as I realize the fullness of your spirit and live in the fullness of your kingdom. Another way you feel it is in the tension between hope 
and discouragement. The reality of hope is real in the New Testament. You have the resurrection. You have the Spirit being given to the church. You have the victory of the cross. Enemies have been defeated. Sin, death, and the devil have been given this knockout blow by Jesus. And yet, doesn't it often feel like God is not on the throne? That the world behaves like the world is always going to behave? Like folks who do not yet know God? Ongoing sufferings, ongoing trials, ongoing battles with personal sin? You peel the layer back on any life, what are you going to see? You're not going to see the rosy pictures that picture, people post on Facebook or on social media. You're going to see regrets. You're going to see brokenness. You're going to see all the ways we break relationship with one another. And so these produce moments and perhaps even seasons of discouragement. So the Christian lives within this tension. How can I not let discouragement, how can I not let hopelessness rule in my soul? How? How can discouragement not have the last word in my life, when I see my sin, when I see the evil in the world, when I see the trials that I'm going through, season after season for some of you. Friends, you have to preach to yourself. Hope is real. Jason, be reminded, victory is assured. Jason, life is short. Jason, don't you know what time it is? It's game time. Jason, can't you remember that you are the beloved of God? Jason, can't you remember that Christ died for you? Can't you remember that you were made in the very image of God? You see, only truth dispels discouragement. Do you get that? How much truth are you taking in on a daily basis? Or are you drowning in the discouragement that our world and the devil loves to whisper in your ear day after day? Discouragement coming from the world, coming from the devil, right to your soul. And so, friends, only truth dispels that kind of discouragement. You've got to preach to yourself. You've got to remind yourself whose you are and who you are. The victory that is yours in Christ. The Spirit that has been given to you. That's the tension that we all face. The normal Christian life. Let me go to question five. We'll skip over question four. We'll maybe come back to that next week. Question five is this, Mark 13, 1 through 23. What do possibly these events refer to? They actually refer to the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. Look at the context, verse 1 and 2. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to them, You see these buildings? They will be not left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so he begins by talking about the temple, this wonder of the ancient world, under construction for 50 plus years. Could accommodate more than 12 football fields within 35 acre enclosure. Ancient writers used to notice that when the sun reflected off the gold and all the ivory, that you almost had to, to shield your eyes. Such was the glory 
and the magnificence of this wonder of the ancient world, the Jerusalem temple, back in Jesus' day. And yet, just 40 years later, in 70 AD, Caesar ordered the entire city, including the Jerusalem temple, to be leveled to the ground and raised, burned, in such a manner that future visitors, he said, would not even begin to recognize or even know that there even was a city or a temple ever existed on that site. And so Jesus, is he warning about some future event here, at least in these verses? Not yet. We'll get to that. Jesus is speaking very pastorally here to a people who one day would be undergoing national sorrow and disappointment over the providence of God. It would have been like us after Pearl Harbor. It would have been like us after 9-11. Is God really in charge? Is God truly sovereign? How can evil be this terrible if God is good and if God is in charge? And so Jesus is going to counsel endurance in the face of several great challenges for the early Christians. First, He counsels endurance in the face of wars and disasters, saying the end has not yet come. Jesus says, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom of against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Historians estimate that out of the last 3,421 years of recorded history, Only 268 years have been without war. That's less than 8% of recorded history. So when wars begin in our time and in our era, especially after the advent of the nuclear bomb, it's so easy for our thinking to quickly go apocalyptic. This is how, probably, if you think about history, how the believers in the confessing church in Nazi Germany might have been thinking, how can this not be the end of the world? Gas chambers over there. Or maybe how Russian Christians felt during the Napoleonic Wars. Or maybe Christians in Rome during the fall of Rome to those barbarians in the 5th century. Surely this is the end. Surely this is the apocalypse. And some of you maybe have engaged in some of those thoughts yourselves. Or maybe heard of folks who have. Even with the wars that we're going through today, Ukraine, Israel, the Middle East, South China Sea, what's going to go on there? Is this the end? Jesus says these things must take place, but the end is not yet. Even in the first century, between the cross and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Mount Vesuvius buried Pompeii, There was a terrible earthquake in Laodicea. There was a famine in Rome itself, the original audience of Mark's Gospel. Three earthquakes in Italy, 68 A.D. Earthquake in Jerusalem, 67 A.D. So what gives? Jesus is saying, I told you. I told you these things were about to come. And so Jesus is preparing His bride in the face of wars and natural disasters. Don't get sidetracked. Don't become alarmist. Don't you know that it's hubris and pride to think that you, of all people, can read the end of the world off the the front page of today's 
news. That is never a good idea. Second, he also counsels endurance in the face of political persecution and social marginalization. Jesus says they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. Brother will deliver brother over to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Friends, this American experiment is like the slimmest possible picture of what the church has gone through throughout the ages. Even today, the fastest growing church, where? In Iran. Amongst people who are persecuted and marginalized socially for their faith. And so if you think this last 50, 60 years is common throughout history or common in the globe today, think again. Jesus always prepares His church for endurance in the face of persecution and marginalization. You will suffer under a secular state. You'll be socially marginalized from power. This is the normal Christian life. Don't be surprised when, not if, it happens. A couple applications as we finish up. First, the Lord is the sovereign Lord over history. Some of you are Presbyterians by birth and baptism. Most of you are here at Trinity because you're Christ-centered believers who happen to find a church home who loved you and cared for you here at Trinity. But here's where I love to be Presbyterian. Presbyterians, perhaps more than any other group, we still believe in the providence of God. That everything happens under His sovereign love and care. John Calvin would say that the whole universe, the entire creation, would spin out of control if it were not for the providence of God sustaining and holding all things together by the power of His Word. And so I believe, as a Presbyterian, that the mayhem caused by war is not out of the sovereign control of God. The Lord is the Lord of all of history. And if God sees fit over and over in human history to bring peace and goodness out of disaster and war, how much more so in your life? How much more so in my life? At the National Gathering, Mike, Elmer and I were at this last week in Greenville, South Carolina for our denomination. Mike Elmer went to a presentation of a Ukrainian seminary training pastors and leaders that was occupied for a time by the Russian army. The Russian army was burning the cadavers of fallen soldiers in the classrooms of this seminary. And yet we get bent out of shape over minor offenses in our lives. And so the perspective is this. God is sovereign over your life and over all of history. Can you trust His sovereignty? Can you trust His sovereignty in life when there are trials and tribulations? This is what eschatology actually teaches you front 
and sinner, more than you know, asking you to be a code breaker of some future eschatological event. The, the eschatology of the New Testament says, be on your guard, be ready. Be in, uh, you're going to have to endure the trials and tribulations that come your way. But why is there good news? Christ and His cross, that He died for you, that everything that you'll go through, He first went through for you. And second application is this. Endurance matters to God. He finishes Jesus saying, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so you can step back, say, am I going through trials? Am I going through tribulations? Am I going through the toughest season of my life? Jesus says to you, keep holding on. Keep enduring. Do you believe that God can bring you to a place of tenderness even in the midst of these trials? Do you believe it? That you can actually lean into the heart of God during your hardest season of life during difficulties and trials that come your way, and you might just be led into a new season of tenderness. You just might be led into a new season of intimacy with God precisely in your trials and precisely in your discouragement and precisely in the way that you say, Lord, I can't handle this. That's when God is ready to take up the reins in your life. When you get on your face and say, Lord, I can't handle life anymore. It's too much. That's when you begin to live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Begin to repent of your sin. Humble yourself before the Lord. You, O oh Lord, how I need you in my life. So it's in the places of trials. It's in the places of suffering. It's in the places where we see our sin oh so clearly that then we then can become victors walking in the Spirit. Given a place of tenderness and intimacy with our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we love You and we thank You Father, we want to be people that endure to the end. We don't want to just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be glorified in heaven. We want to see You face to face. We want to get greater rest for our souls, greater blessings, greater presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the fullness of the kingdom. And so, Lord, we know what a tension we feel right down the heart of who we are, this tension of our ongoing sin, this tension of hope and discouragement all mixed together. We can't really flush it out sometimes in our lives, Lord, but so we lay everything before You. Lord, I give You everyone and everything. All my trials, all my tribulations, all the hopelessness that I feel, Lord. Help us, Lord, not to listen to the world and the devil whispering in our ear. Help us, Lord, to be strong, to preach to ourselves the truth that only the truth dispels all of our discouragement. And so help us walk in the truth. 
Help us walk in the light. Help us put off the deeds of the flesh and put on the Spirit of God so that we might walk in the victory of the resurrection. Lord, we need you to do all that. And so we thank you that today we've been strengthened by these very ordinary elements, this body and this blood poured out for us. Lord, it's not by our own might, our own strength, but by relying on you. King Jesus, come, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.